The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander in Shanghai, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Fenstaden of the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to talk about an interesting mix of topics that we don't ordinarily put together, but it's China's demography or population the Belt and Road Initiative, and Africa. And that is an unusual combination in part because when we talk about China's population, most people think there is not a problem here. If in fact, if there is a problem, there are too many people in China. China, after all, has the largest population in the world with 1.3 billion people. A lot of people think that in fact, there is a surplus of people when in fact, over the past 30 or 40 years, one of the things that we've seen is a steady decline in population and birth rates in China, creating a very, very serious crisis. Now, let me take you back a little bit 30 or 40 years ago when China introduced something that they called the one-child policy, and they strictly enforced how many children people could have. It was one people for people in the cities, some people in the countryside could have two, but it was a strictly regimented family planning policy. And now what that did is it led to the crisis that we confront today. The fact that there are too many old people and way too few young people and that is something that is sparking policy ramifications across the board. So let me give you a few statistics right now, uh, just to kind of set the stage for what's going on. China has 158 million people over the age of 65. Now that is more people than exist in all of Russia. And what that should do is give you a sense of the pyramid that exists here. We're at the bottom of the pyramid, the tip of it, think of it upside down, is the young people that are now supporting 158 million older people. So it's very much the same trend that we're seeing in Japan and we're seeing in Europe and potentially in the United States, given that immigration now is slowing in the United States. So the population over 65 has continued to rise. The population under 65 is falling. And in response, the Chinese government implemented something called the two-child policy back in 2015. One very small problem, though, with that, People aren't having two children. It's not working. So all of this is happening now, and it's creating really this sense of urgency in China, and you feel it here, that time is running out. They have to change their economic relationship, both internally and with the rest of the world, over the next 20 to 30 years, or else they're going to face the same demographic problems that are being confronted by the Japanese. Now, Kobus, this brings us to the Belt and Road Initiative. So the Belt and Road is definitely one of the most ambitious global trading agendas that's ever existed. I mean, we're talking about a trillion dollars that the Chinese are planning to spend. And so I think before we get into our discussion with the linkage between the two, maybe you can talk to us very, very briefly about the Belt and Road and set us up as to why that's important. The Belt and Road is the gem in the crown of Xi Jinping's trade and, and foreign policy it is a massive scheme that essentially connects China to Europe overland through Central Asia and Eastern Europe um, through linking train lines and then oversee through connecting ports and shipping lanes um, from through Southeast Asia and then to uh, East Africa, to connecting to Mombasa in Kenya 
and then up through the Suez Canal to the Mediterranean to Greece. And in, in Africa, it is also linked to internal developments connecting Mombasa, Nairobi, and it's going to be connecting to other countries um, in East Africa as well. So it's this massive, extremely expensive rollout of infrastructure halfway around the world. And in the, in the widest scheme, it creates a kind of a new narrative, a new global narrative of globalization, where in the past, we, we always thought of globalization as something going from the West to the rest of the world. And now we are thinking of globalization as essentially a, a recentering of the world with Beijing in the center. Okay, so it seems totally random. And if you're still with us in the show, because we've gone on five or six different tangents already in the first three or four minutes of the program, we're going to actually link these two important trends together. And here to help us do that is Dr. Lauren Johnston, who just finished a three-year fellowship at the University of Melbourne. And she's now just about to start a consultancy with the World Bank in Beijing and via the New South Economics Consultancy. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much, Eric. It's nice <laughs> to be I'm going to make fun of you very quickly. I know this is not a very nice way to start our time on the show together, but the title of your paper is China, Africa, and the Belt and Road Initiative, Undoing Afro-Pessimism via History, Demographics, and Economic Geography. I just don't understand why you academics make titles so confusing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand what these things so mean. clear it's, compared to humanities papers. <laughs> oh, God. It's, it's not the final title yet. This, <laughs> okay. is, a, this is a draft. <laughs> okay, so let's uh, do me a favor. That title is was trying to link together what we talked about at the beginning of the program, linking demography in China with the Belt and Road and with Africa. Do me a favor and connect those dots for us as you've done in your paper. I'll start with what you were describing at the beginning of the podcast, which is this state of population aging in China, thanks to not actually only just family planning, but simply almost a, a free fall in fertility that meant China rapidly caught up to the average fertility rates of its region. So Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, you know, it's just it's become a kind of a demographic norm of its region. And indeed, that does mean that there are now fewer workers as a share of the whole population. The, the share of the workforce population in China peaked around 2013 or maybe 2011. What, what that means is that a kind of a 40 year period, roughly, when there was a really like a fairly large share of the population in their productive peak. So aged roughly from 15 to 60, 65 that peak is now falling. That's called a demographic dividend when you have a really high population share in their productive years. So that's now China's at the tail end of that period. And now, so now they need to shift their growth model because as a result of, first of all, the retirement of a lot of older workers, you have that falling population share. But also, not only are there fewer young people, but most of China's young people are far more educated than were the older people retiring today. So you have much more expensive labor and, and, you know, kind of, you know, much more educated labor who don't make such good workers in a, in a mass labor intensive environment in a factory. And they're much more expensive. So yesterday's China of this labor intensive manufacturing heartland for the world is really gone as a result of these demographic changes, or at least is diminishing. Okay. And certainly importantly... So bring us to Belt and Road and how it connects to Belt and Road. So what that means is that China, there are still investors and there are still companies 
that have amazing expertise in labor-intensive manufacturing. And the other side of that growth, of course, was that China massively invested in fixed capital investment, which is roads, bridges, and so on. They now have excess capacity in both infrastructure and in this desire to, you know, stay involved in labor-intensive manufacturing by outsourcing it to other kind of younger demographic frontiers. So in a sense, what they're doing is looking for countries that look a bit like they looked in 1980 and countries demographically and, you know, at the baseline of education that look a bit like China did in 1980, which is needing bridges, needing roads, needing infrastructure, having a large surplus of low-wage workers, those countries are places like Ethiopia. And, you know, and Kenya, the labor's maybe not as cheap as Ethiopia. But that's the kind of parallel. So Belt and Road is about taking a model that it really took off when China's demographic dividend began to, you know, get, get a bit of momentum. So you had this vast supply of cheap labor, and that's really kind of where Ethiopia and so on sit on the frontier today. So China's really looking to use the Belt and Road Initiative to both address or the loss of the old growth model and the fact that it needs to find sources of growth to pay for all those old people and so on now today by repeating a, a similar process built on the demographic dividend potential in, you know, young, demographically young places like Ethiopia and Tanzania and, and other younger demographic economies and low-wage economies in Africa. So, you know, if, if you look at Africa, you know, I, I can see in broad strokes that in terms of demographics, for example, in terms of infrastructure, that, that Africa looks like, you know, parts of China did um, in the 80s. But can you walk us through that a little bit more detail? What are the similarities and the differences between a place like Tanzania now and a place the way that, that Shenzhen used to be? So, you know, Shenzhen now massive mega city and it used to be a fishing village. So, you know, old Shenzhen, what are the similarities and differences between a place like Tanzania? Okay, so Tanzania today, I don't know exactly the share of young or the share of old. But I do know that it has a relatively high fertility rate, even if it's falling and a projected population growth, you know, to become one of the world's larger demographies over the next few decades. If that is the case, and on top of, I guess, the parallel really between Shenzhen and Tanzania, the most interesting one, is possibly what could become the role of Bagamoyo, though it does face competition from Mombasa. Bagamoyo indeed today is a sleepy fishing village, just as Shenzhen was in 1980. And, you know, if you visited Bagamoyo today, you wouldn't believe it might one day become a vast industrial, you know, hub and, a, and an industrial port. But there are some plans to make it that. They, they seem to stop and start and stop and start and stop and start based on change of leadership in Tanzania, based on maybe even analysis of competition between what could be a port hub in Tanzania and what is a port hub or maybe a more advanced port hub so far in Mombasa. But Shenzhen, one of the other parallels between Shenzhen and what could be Bagamoyo, which is 100 kilometres outside of Dar es Salaam, is the potential to kind of link to the hinterland. So it's coastal. And Shenzhen is in southern China, and southern China was very, very labor-rich and low-wage labor-rich. Tanzania has more natural resources, more minerals, so its economic model might be slightly different. 
but it's economic geography in the sense that I think Tanzania has seven or eight borders. Anyway, I'm not sure, I'm sorry, but it has a lot of borders with landlocked countries, just as there are a lot of landlocked provinces in China and the coastal provinces, you know, steadily China built infrastructure from those coastal provinces to the hinterland and to the inland provinces. And one of the the benefits of a place like Tanzania or Kenya is that they have these amazing number of borders with other countries that are otherwise inhibited from, you know, trade outside their own region without a really good infrastructure link. So Belt and Road is kind of focusing on Kenya, Tanzania and so on to build those links. So not only do you unlock the kind of the demographic dividend potential of somewhere like Kenya and Tanzania, but you extend it back to Ethiopia, to Burundi, to Uganda and so on. So it's that's the kind of to unlock that regional dividend almost as well. How appealing are smaller countries like Tanzania to a country like Africa? I mean, and and the reason I ask this is that I'm quite skeptical here because people often talk about, and we've had Helen High on the show, who's a big advocate of China outsourcing more and more of its manufacturing to Africa, in part because she talks about the fact that Africa has one of the youngest populations. The median age is about 18, if I understand correctly. It's really in the middle of this demographic dividend that you're talking about. But at the end of the day... It's really not all about population, because in that case, then Bangladesh and India would be the most successful economies in the world. India certainly is growing very quickly, but it has enormous problems. My point here is that just by looking at the population, we're not taking into account public policy, governance, the infrastructure, all of the other things that contributed to Shenzhen's development that made it so successful today. I mean, Shenzhen, I was there when it was a fishing village 20 years ago. It was nothing. And today, it is just mind-blowing to see the city of 10 million people. And that didn't just happen because it had a big population, which then it didn't, but today it does. And so this governance issue and corruption and all the things that African countries are struggling with today seem to play more of a role than demography. And I'd be curious to get your take on this about the potential for African countries to benefit from China's changing demography and so that African countries can capitalize on their demographic dividend and where the two come together? I guess China had its own governance constraints and its own challenges, just as African countries do today or yesterday or tomorrow. One difference today or over the next 20 or 30 years versus yesterday for, let's say, young African countries that may have struggled. They were also young yesterday and they struggled. And among the reasons for struggling to develop is given as corruption and governance. And I'm not an expert in those issues. One of the shifts today is the impetus for policy reform, which is though the populations were young yesterday, they're much younger today based on improvements in healthcare. And, you know, it kind of it takes a while for fertility to fall once life expectancy and increases and child mortality falls. And that helps produce a demographic dividend in countries that don't enforce that shift. So you've got this upcoming demographic dividend in Africa and therefore you've got governments thinking, wow, we've got all these young people and we need to find jobs for them. So I guess both on the back of the fading demographic dividend in China creating an opportunity and an incentive to reform that didn't exist yesterday or, you know, a decade or two ago simply because China's labour cost advantage then was simply too high 
and it wasn't seeking to, you know, implement this Belt and Road kind of globalization outbound investment model. So there really wasn't the same incentive a decade or two ago, because even if there had been a lot of reform, the level of foreign investment that that may have attracted might have been proportionally much less than it could be today and tomorrow and so on. And then similarly, you have even European interests and so on, because of this young population and fears for security in, you know, 10, 20 years time, if when that young population is much more mobile when they're in their late teens and 20s and 30s, if they decide to get on boats to Europe at that point. So you have a kind of a, not only do you have a greater economic incentive to reform now, you have maybe a greater political will even, you know, in Europe, in Africa and, and so on, a governance and what policies are taking place in different countries and what laws are changing. And I mean, there must be so many different stories in different countries. But that at least would be the macro picture around it that might change the incentives today versus what were the incentives yesterday. One of the interesting issues for me is that in in the case of China, you know, all of this work that it took to to build up these small fishing villages into into mega cities, they were all of that work was also part of a kind of a national development project. You know, where you where things like the media and so on could all work together to construct a narrative of we're all working together and we're all sacrificing for a kind of a bigger national good. I mean, low wages is you know like like people don't necessarily want to work for low low wages. They have to be convinced to work yeah. for low wages, okay. and there has to be a story that would make that make sense. How does that then change when you're talking about foreign direct investment when it's not your national kind of project, you know, of, of development, but it's Tanzania's or Ethiopia's, but you're providing the, the investment. Like, how does that kind of shift the situation? I guess in the sense of the outsourcing of a lot of industries, it makes sense. A lot of what was exported from southern and coastal China was intended for third markets in the West and Europe and, and America and Japan and so on. Xinjiang today may be a per capita, like a low wage, you know, place where in theory a low cost factory could be set up. But by the time you take the transport infrastructure and the distance to the port and so on into account, it's not necessarily a competitive place to export from. And in fact, China is investing in its inland lower cost provinces for its own consumption in kind of closer provinces. A recent paper you know, like kind of identified that domestic flying geese investment from richer coastal provinces to poorer coastal provinces. But that's mainly for Chinese consumption, care of the additional costs of what it would take to get it to the port and then send it overseas. And you have to remember, you know, the Chinese currency is appreciating and, and so on. So there's a number of factors involved in it not being so competitive to export from those places. And then, you know, on, on the other hand, you have in East Africa, particularly places like Ethiopia and so on, you have a kind of a continental opportunity or from Ethiopia, you have the chance to export to Europe with least developed country trade preferences and so on. So that the, the logic of exporting labor intensive products to Europe from Ethiopia rather than Xinjiang both works in terms of infrastructure, in terms of trade preferences and so on. So that logic makes sense. How do those countries take ownership of that process? I mean, the Belt and Road 
has been driven by China and it's driven by economic change and demographic change in China. On the other hand, it does meet this timely shift in demographics in, you know, a few different African countries and in this will to develop and to utilise that youth pool. So the timing may work. Indeed, the, the policies need to work at both ends, not just at one end. And China did receive a lot of foreign investment for its own growth process. So how that same equivalent Chinese investment, whether that's in Ethiopia or Kenya or Tanzania or, or wherever, is received, is it going to be received the way Hong Kong investment or Taiwanese investment or American investment was in China? Presumably not. Those countries are their own countries. Will it work the way it worked in China? Hopefully it works the way it worked in China in the sense of rising per capita incomes and rising living standards. On the other hand, hopefully there's a chance to make the story in Africa more green and sustainable than was China's story. Maybe there will be a different set of foreign investors. I mean, it, it will be its own story. It just, you know, the, the Belt and Road will be part of that story. It's a foreign investment opportunity that didn't exist maybe 10 years ago for some of those recipient countries. But obviously it will take a lot of negotiation and a lot of bilateral discussion and regional discussion and so on to make it work at both ends. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So you talked about how there are demographic changes that are motivating Belt and Road and also economic changes in China. And there's two points that you brought up about two key factors that motivated Xi Jinping back in 2013 to when he publicly announced Belt and Road for the first time. And it was excess industrial capacity and improved return on investment on savings as two key factors that really prompted the Chinese to look abroad to develop their economy. And I think in some ways, both of those are playing themselves out in Africa. And I'd like to get your take on this. The excess industrial capacity is really this the problem that the Chinese are exporting steel below market value, potentially. They are exporting products that are flooding markets and making it difficult for producers in countries like Nigeria and South Africa and elsewhere. So I'd like you to talk about excess industrial capacity and the impact that it may be having on African economies and also uh, improved ROI on savings. And now that was manifested in turning to infrastructure. Right now, the Chinese have over a trillion dollars in American savings bonds, which are generating probably somewhere around 1% interest. So they're not growing their money very much on that savings, and they want to grow it more through loans and lending for infrastructure. So could you kind of talk about how those two kind of connect to Africa? I guess on the, on the excess industrial capacity... China and the mechanics of the global steel industry is an area of expertise unto itself. My understanding and my sense would be that there's probably a transition period. China has been investing in steel capacity in countries like South Africa, I think even in Kenya, certainly in West Africa. So it, it, like if you if you look at it on a kind of a long run horizon rather than 
the kind of, you know, excess capacity of China's steel industry over the last five years, how that evolves in Africa in terms of who owns the steel mills and how production shifts so that it may be closer to the source. I mean, you know, urbanization of China over the last two decades meant uh, the building of an awful number of skyscrapers and, you know, a lot of infrastructure around that. And that the locus of that demand for steel is obviously shifting, whether it's to India or to Africa or so on. So it probably isn't, even though it's currently cost competitive, either because of subsidies or simply because of the the nature of the value chain that China has built up, for African consumption of steel over the long run, based even on those changing wage costs in China, I would guess it won't be competitive to produce the steel in China over the next, you know, 10 years or less. I'm not an expert in steel, so those numbers aren't anything kind of, you know, fixed. But I, I would think it probably makes more sense to produce closer to where the demand will be. Not least Africa itself has lots of iron ore and and so on. It's just a question of getting reliable electricity supply such that, you know, you can have that scale of industrial activity. In terms of the, the flooding of Africa with Chinese goods, indeed, there are many stories and studies of different products in different countries that that has happened for. I mean, the same thing does also happen with you know recycled US clothing and with European agricultural products. So I would say that China's not alone in being guilty in that area. Maybe being maybe it's more competitive in low value added manufacturing exports. Again, this is a kind of a question probably of a transition period where China has been that competitive low value added export, you know, kind of hegemon almost. And thanks to demographics, thanks to its shift in its economic model, it's moving away from that. Is it moving away from that at a rate that is helpful to, you know, entrepreneurs and different factories and so on in Africa? Probably case studies, yes, and probably case studies, no. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of different companies in different countries trying to do different things. I'm not underestimating that there has been a big threat, but I if you look at the kind of direction of the Chinese economy, the threat may begin to diminish, at least at that very macro level. And that that might be helped even as the continental free trade agreement or even regional trade agreements reduce trade barriers between African economies. On the other hand, that might facilitate the movement of Chinese goods too. So I'd say it's a transition period that is moving in favour of production and consumption of goods within African markets. But obviously that's a very macro story and there's probably a lot of frustrated entrepreneurs today in Africa who can't compete with Chinese goods or even, as I said, with Dutch chickens either. So there is so much that's going on behind the scenes with Belt and Road that people are not following because, again, it's so complex, it's so poorly understood. But as you can see, the demography and excess capacity and return on investment in our savings are key factors in China that are driving this policy, which are having a huge impact on Africa's potential economic development and the fact that China is engaging many countries in Africa on this regard. And I think it's very interesting for us to study these angles on it. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We really appreciate it. When does your paper come out? Oh, 
Um, I'm not sure. That's, <laughs> that's the that's million the coolest, dollar. Uh, the coolest question to ask <laughs> an academic. We never know. Indeed. <laughs> 2020, who knows? Oh, yeah, like, no. like <laughs> flying cars, apes taking over the planet, like about that. It's, it's yeah, terrible. There are other because papers, there there are are other papers oh, out there. Who are some people that have done, have you done some writing on this? Because I, I just, I don't want to leave our listeners hanging if they're interested in pursuing this topic of the intersection of demography and Belt and Road and whatnot. Have you done some previous work on this or are there some people you can recommend that... that I uh, have a, a, a couple of book chapters which aren't out yet, but I have a couple of pieces, like a few easy-to-read blog pieces that link the topic. One is on the Australian Institute of International Affairs, one is on the Melbourne University website, and, I mean, if anyone searches my name, China Africa Demographics, they will presumably come up in Google. Longer we'll go ahead and put chapters. links on our uh, in the show notes for this program as well, so people to find that. Oh, okay, great, great, great. That, that's Thanks. great. Well, Lauren Johnson is uh, formerly of the University of Melbourne, but now just about to start a new consultancy with the World Bank in Beijing. I'll bring your air mask with you to China. Huh? No, no, my lungs breathe Beijing air for eight years already. Okay, uh, so I, hopefully they're acclimatized. They're nice and calloused, and uh, she's some, also some of this. Some of that work will be done from Melbourne too. So lucky they'll, they'll... you. And she's also a consultant with the New South Economics and a paper oh, China no, that, Africa. That's my this is that's that's my consultancy via which I do these projects through. Ah, okay. Well, good to know. And so with the World Bank, so that hopefully in the next couple of years we'll start to see more work from you coming out on this. Uh, the paper that will come out eventually: China, Africa, and the Belt and Road Initiative: Undoing Afro Pessimism via History, Demographics, and Economic Geography. <laughs> Thank you Stop again. It's a, it's a these silly <laughs> academic titles are just complicated for us late. People, not but silly nonetheless, we, <laughs> it's no, they're very meaningful. I just don't always understand them, but I, nonetheless, the, the economic geography story is in a is in a separate paper or two. That that's just that particular chapter brings them together. Got it. Okay. Or tries. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. It's great talking to you. Gobis, this show felt a little bit all over the map, and that's in part because this topic is all over the map. It's a complicated topic that links together demographics, economics, politics in ways that are very, very hard for a lot of people to understand. And, and again, this comes back to this question of how is it possible that China, with 1.3 billion people, has a population problem? It's a discussion that I have with a lot of our listeners online who always kind of talk about how China's exporting labor to Africa, particularly prisoners. And what you're hearing from the data is that's a ridiculous notion. It doesn't exist. There's no factual evidence to support that. But the logic also now tells you that that's not possible simply because there's a shortage of labor here. The cost of labor since 2007 has been rising. Why would China be exporting labor to other countries? Simply because it costs too much and there is not enough people here to do it. There's one other point that I want to bring up here is we cannot overstate the seriousness of this population crisis in China. And I've read some analysis, interestingly enough, and this ties into your essay that you wrote recently about Xi Jinping and his abandonment of term limits and how he is basically now in power for the next you know, 30, 40 years, however long he wants. And one of the factors that some of the analysis says that drove him to make this decision was that he believes potentially that there is just a 30-year window that China has to get this population question right. 
And that means that China has to shift its economy to make it so that fewer people are more productive so that they can generate the wealth that will support this massive 158, 200 million person retirement population. You cannot overestimate how serious this is. And it really is very, very scary because if they get this wrong, the whole thing potentially can implode. And it's similarly scary from an African side in the sense that Africa has this, this incredible youth dividend. I mean, you know, as you say, that the median age is around 18 in Africa. In um, At the end of the century, about one, one quarter of all people in Africa will be, all people on earth will be African. So Africa has a lot of young people. But it's, it's in this kind of cruel situation where they have all these young people, but they don't really have anything to do with them. And so their talents are being wasted. All of this youth is being wasted. And that leads to a lot of potential problems in Africa, including religious extremism, including a lot of migration. And so you have, you know, young people who should, who are the, the, the prime of their lives drowning in the Mediterranean as they try to get to a new life in Europe. So, and Africa only has a, a similar kind of few decade window to try and to try and kind of get this right, to use this opportunity before it starts really, really destabilizing the continent. It's a big issue. I mean, there's, you know, in South Africa, as someone who, who taught students, you really feel for these people that they're so bright, they're so talented, and there's so few opportunities for them. So I think the hope here is, and this is the hope, is that the marriage of China's wealth technology with Africa's labor and energy and youth is able to, to come together. The same way that we're seeing Africa and Latin American resources with Chinese capital. That's been a good match. Now we want to see if there's a labor opportunity. The one thing that I'm skeptical of is that China now has a lot of opportunities because Latin America in many ways is facing a similar challenge. And so would the Chinese go to Africa, would they go to Latin America, or will they stay in Southeast Asia? A lot of Chinese money is coming into Vietnam and to Myanmar and Laos. That's much closer to home. The cost of logistics are much lower. So Africa has to compete. They have to make sure that those economies are ready for the Chinese to come in. They have to clean up in corruption. They have to invest in education and invest in infrastructure. And to be honest with you, those trends are not always very encouraging in many parts of Africa. The Chinese are not simply going to pull out their checkbook and just write checks to Africa as they've been doing for the past 15 or 20 years. I think those days are going to come to an end. And, and they're going to come to but, an end potentially this year with FOCAC and the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit. You know, when you look at an African country who is really focusing on trying to push development very hard and who's in a way kind of bending over backwards to invite outside investment, which is Ethiopia. Yeah. Like I was just in Ethiopia this weekend and Addis Ababa is like a massive construction site. Like everywhere you look, it's just skyscrapers going up. There's cranes all over the landscape. It's crazy. So it's certainly happening in some African countries. That's right. And we should give credit to Botswana. We should give credit to Rwanda and even to some extent Kenya that are really doing, you know, some remarkable things, particularly in technology and reforming their economies. There are other more problematic areas, as we talked about for a long time. So anyway, that's our show. A little bit of a crazy off the map kind of not focused show. But I think there was a lot of interesting points here. We'd love to hear what you think. This is a topic that we will come back to time and time again, particularly over the next six months leading up into the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit that happens in Beijing in September, as in part because we will get some really key indications as to where China is going, both with regards to Belt and Road and Africa in general. 
This is a topic that we also include in our regular weekly email. We have a brand new design coming out, and uh, we're so excited that we're going to be able to launch that maybe next week, maybe the week after. Stephanie Ferrand, who is our newsletter editor, is fast uh, working on this and, and getting it ready for you. So we'd love to invite you to join this great community of readers of our newsletter. It comes out every Monday. You can sign up over on our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And there's also a link on Facebook. So for Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander in Shanghai. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.